0: My name is Erin Macri, and I am a member of the BGSM editorial team. It is my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. Kirstie Elliott-Sale. Dr. Elliott-Sale is an associate professor of female physiology at Nottingham Trent University in Nottingham, England, where she is head of the musculoskeletal physiology research group. For over 20 years, she has been focused on elite women athletes and maternal populations, primarily in the areas of endocrinology and musculoskeletal and exercise physiology. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Elliott-Sale.
1: Hi Erin, thank you so much for having me on. It's my absolute pleasure to join you today.
0: Lovely. So today we're talking about something that I think remains a little bit of a taboo topic um, in the world of sports and, you know, perhaps even in the world in general. (laughs) So today we're talking about menstruation. I guess maybe just to set the stage, I I would like to ask you first off, what is it about this topic that is becoming a hot topic now in sports? Like why now?
1: I think the time is is right now. Um, I think it's been building momentum for, for quite a while. So, um, for example, one of the main driving forces is that at the next Olympic Games in Tokyo, they will be the first Games where there's parity for uh, Olympic medals. So, there are, will be as many medals available for um, sportswomen as for sportsmen. Um, so, of course, that's a, a huge milestone in, in terms of elite sports. I guess. More generally, um, there's been increased participation um, of women in sport across the board. Um, so, with milestones such as uh, Title IX in in the USA um, increased participation recently in the UK, um, you know, huge. Social media campaigns um, like This Girl Can—it's really, you know, driving this um, increased participation from, you know, adolescents uh, right the way through to sort of, you know, older, more mature women taking part in sport. So it's great. Um, as I say, it's been building for a while. Um, it would have been nice to have started a little earlier, a little sooner, um, but we're we're here now and we're working towards it. And the really nice, I guess, outcome of this is that we're starting to talk about menstruation more freely. Um, we're starting to ask uh, sportswomen about their lived experience, how menstruation affects their participation, their training, their performance, um, and so that's you know really bringing this topic out into sort of you know. A into into the sporting world, but B, as you say, more importantly, into society and and shining a, a much-needed light on it.
0: Lovely, thank you. So perhaps before we actually start talking about your research, I mean, I know as female-bodied humans, but probably also for the men who are listening, um, you know, we know a lot about the experience of menstruation. Well, maybe not the men, but the women, and we know a lot about the the experience of menstruation, but we may not actually know, you know, the what's actually happening. In menstruation so maybe you can just give us a quick breakdown about what is the menstrual cycle what is some of the terminology that we use when we're talking about this
1: sure of course and um, so this is usually quite a visual and um, a visual thing so I'm going to try and use my words well to, to describe this so menstruation is just one part one phase of, of the menstrual cycle so there are two different terms So the menstrual cycle refers to a repeating pattern um, of changes in in hormones, um, particularly oestrogen and progesterone, that occur typically over a 28-day period. So we say 28 days, that's just a, a sort of standardized, idealized number. It's super important that we realize that the menstrual cycle length is different between women and sometimes it can be different in the same woman. So it's just to to point out, it's not always 28 days, it can actually be anywhere between 21 and 35 days, and and that's considered normal. So in terms of some of those changes that occur in oestrogen and progesterone across the menstrual cycle, so I'll I'll start with oestrogen first. Um, At the start of the menstrual cycle, so that's the first day, day one, that's the first day of menstruation, the first day of, of bleeding that's when oestrogen levels are are low. So they stay low for several days, so five, six days at the start of the cycle, but then they start to increase rapidly. And so there's a peak in oestrogen concentration just before the the middle of the cycle. Then it drops off sharply. And then again, sort of towards the the sort of latter third of the cycle, there's a secondary peak in oestrogen before it tails off again to, to restart that cycle. And then with progesterone, Again, on the first day of the menstrual cycle, when there's um, menstruation, when, when when the sportswoman is having her, her period, um, progesterone levels are low. They stay low for the first half of the cycle. And then in the second half of the cycle, that's when they, they peak in that um, sort of latter third of the cycle. So what you can hear is, is that both of those hormones change across that sort of time scale. They change independently of each other. So sometimes one is high and the other one is low. So there are, you know, as I say, a repeating pattern that occurs over time, but those concentrations and those changes are highly variable, both between women and within a woman.
0: Great. And it might be helpful. We can include an image uh, in the podcast notes so that people can actually get a visual on what you're trying to say as well. That's great. Thank you. (laughs) So we know that the use of hormonal contraceptives, I think mostly oral contraceptives, is quite common among women of reproductive age. But what do we know specifically about women athletes in particular and does that differ between recreational athletes or elite athletes
1: great question so um, i was part of a study a few years ago with my then phd student dan martin and we did um i guess an audit of elite sports women who were living in the UK at that time. And um, we asked them about hormonal contraceptive use and non use. Um, so, I guess just to quickly mention that oral contraceptives are just one type of hormonal contraception. And um, so, we were interested in really understanding the, the landscape of, of all types of hormonal contraception. And so, um, Data from this questionnaire study um, showed us that in the UK, um, so this was about 2-3 years ago, um, almost half of all elite athletes were using some type of hormonal contraception. And From the hormonal contraceptive users, you're right, combined oral contraceptives um, were the most common type. Um, then of course there are 50% who are non-users, um, from that we can um we can consider that some of those would be eumenorrheic, so having this menstrual cycle that I've just described, um, and that some of them may have menstrual irregularities, um, so maybe things like amenorrhea and so on. And therefore, they would have significantly different hormonal profiles than the one that I just described for you for the menstrual cycle.
0: And one of the things that that you did in that paper, the Martin study, was ask women what their reason for taking oral contraceptives or hormonal contraceptives were, and it wasn't only about because it wasn't only about contraception. And what what were some of the key key findings with that paper?
1: You you might expect that hormonal contraceptives are used for the sole purpose of of contraception, but actually in sports women there are other sort of you know other motivations for, for for using them and for taking them so some of them were around um you know convenience uh, so for example it may well be that a sportswoman is trying to avoid um her period during something like the olympic games um it could well be that you know somebody like um a, a rower for example if they're out on the water for hours and hours on end uh, of course as you might imagine it can be quite difficult if, if you're menstruating and and you know you, you need to to deal with that so i think convenience was was a you know a, quite a big reason so either sort of manipulating when the um you know if they had a bleed or, or not um or trying to you know for some athletes just trying to entirely get rid of um sort of you know menstruation and the changes in hormone concentrations and um, seen in the menstrual cycle oh and one and one more of course sorry um is around getting or alleviating some of the symptoms and side effects associated with the menstrual cycle so for example um maybe cramps or headaches, or fatigue, and um, even changes in mood. Um, so sometimes, um, hormone contraceptive users they don't experience those same side effects, and um, that they're removed by using a hormone contraceptive. So of course, as you might imagine, that would have a, a big impact on their ability to train and to compete.
0: From this study, you then went on to undertake two additional uh, systematic reviews, which have just recently been uh, published this year. Um, Can you please just tell us a little bit about what the research question was and how you designed those studies?
1: Sure. So these are two papers um, that I worked with as, as part of a team. And again, another really great PhD student, Kelly McNulty, who's based at Northumbria University. And so I was part of this team and we were really interested to try and uh, look back at all of the studies that have been published to date um relevant to how either the phases of the menstrual cycle or oral contraceptive use affect exercise performance
0: So after performing these studies, are you able to summarize in, in a fairly simple way? Because I know you did a lot of different um, a lot of different analyses. Can you summarize what the results were?
1: Sure, so I'll start with the, the menstrual cycle paper. The data um, showed that exercise performance might be reduced by a trivial amount during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle when compared to other phases. That's right at the start of the menstrual cycle, so when athletes are menstruating, that's the time when I said estrogen and progesterone levels are low. So this was the time that we identified where for some athletes, they might see a reduction in exercise performance. But in statistical terms, that reduction was by a trivial amount. So for some athletes, they're having this you know, very small uh, reduction in performance during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. But you'll notice that I've said several times, some athletes. And the reason why I keep sort of quantifying it's some, it's because not all athletes have the same experience. So there was large between-study variation, and so that makes it really difficult for us to take these findings and apply them at a group setting. So what I think, you know, what we recommended was that, you know, practically, The current evidence does not warrant general guidelines for for everybody. These guidelines, this information that we showed and the data showed from our uh, meta-analysis, that should be taken at a a personalised individual level, such that those athletes who are affected should consider this, but of course we know that many female athletes are, are not going to be affected in this way. So that's what we showed for the menstrual cycle study. Um, Okay, so let's um, quickly move on to then the um, oral contraceptive users. So with the oral contraceptive users, we actually had to um, almost consider two concurrent um, hormonal profiles. So what I mean by that is, an oral contraceptive user has a down-regulated, so reduced concentrations of endogenous estrogen and progesterone. So what this really means is, is that the estrogen and progesterone produced naturally by the body in an oral contraceptive user is, is blunted. It's a low level and it sort of stays low pretty much all of the time. So it doesn't have those peaks and troughs oestrogen and progesterone that i described for a eumenorrheic menstrual cycle athlete at the same time though the oral contraceptive pill user and here i'm describing those on a monophasic pill they're taking a pill for 21 days and then they have either seven pill free days or seven placebo pills so during the 21 pill taking days or the active pill days at that time they're putting an exogenous so an external synthetic uh, type of hormone into their body. So what this means is every day they're having this increase in the synthetic concentration of these hormones in their bloodstream. So as you can see here, we have two hormonal profiles at the same time. So that's the way we had to approach this oral contraceptive um, study. So I'm going to tell you first about um, what happens um, in terms of that sort of um, endogenous or natural hormone profile. So when we compared oral contraceptive users to those with a natural eumenorrheic menstrual cycle, we, uh, the data showed that the oral contraceptive pill user might have a slight reduction, so a slightly inferior exercise performance. So this is the same type of trivial response um, when compared to those with a eumenorrheic cycle. But again, here, there was a lot of variation in this response. Such that again, you know, we concluded that based on the data, the current data, and um, we don't really need to take it as a as a general guidance. And we, you know, we can't really conclude that oral contraceptive users, all of them, are disadvantaged in compared to those who don't take one. So again, we're really suggesting here that we look at this at an individual level. So again, some oral contraceptive pill users might be affected, while others aren't. And those who are affected, just remembering that it's a, a trivial amount. So we're very small amount when compared to the menstrual cycle. And then lastly, when I said we had this sort of second hormonal profile to consider, so we looked at those pill-taking days when they had this extra um, sort of synthetic hormone in their bloodstream versus the pill-free days when, of course, they don't have that. And what the data showed was that exercise performance was consistent across the full 28 days. So in that respect, an oral contraceptive pill user, there didn't seem to be any difference in performance, whether they were, you know, taking any of those active, pills uh, for the 21 days or the seven inactive and pill days. So that
0: was the other finding, main finding from that particular study. So usually in research you know you were talking about small, medium and large effect sizes and and, you know as we've been sort of moving away from relying on p-values and really talking about but is it clinically meaningful and we're usually looking at moderate or large effect sizes but I'm curious what you think if if we're talking about elite women is a trivial effect size meaningful? That's a great question so the first thing that I need to sort of
1: clarify is with the um, two studies that I've just described um, the the studies included there weren't specifically on elite athletes and so actually there's very little data available on this topic in elite sports women and so the first thing is that these studies you know will have a real mixture of you know sort of um, physical activity levels. Um, I guess then, in, in direct response to your question, yes. At the elite level, we we often talk about marginal gains. So even a very very small effect size uh, has the potential to, you know, put you on the podium or, or take you off the podium. So I think, you know, given the sort of highly variable nature of the of the data so far, I think the best way to move forward is rather than, I guess overestimate um you know or overinterpret that existing information which we know isn't of the highest quality so that was another thing that um, these two studies showed is that you know the previous data we have a lot of low to moderate quality information. So I think rather than you know overinterpret the, the data to date, um, given that it's it's of low to moderate quality, I think two things need to happen. One, we need to conduct um, more high-quality studies, um, so that we can give an evidence base to, to elite female athletes. And two, I think, given the highly variable nature, so that some sports women will be affected and some won't, I think we really need to turn our attention to the lived experience um, of sports women. So it goes really back full circle, Erin, to how we started. It's you know making sure that we're talking about these issues with our sports women. You know that we're tracking and um, the response of sports women to either the menstrual cycle phase or oral contraceptive use, and that way we can make really good personalised, um, you know, advice and, and guidelines to, to elite sports women, such that we get these marginal gains
0: i'm really curious you know as a listener as a as a coach or an athlete themselves or even someone from the medical team what i would like to know of course is what the implications of these findings are as far as far as my training strategies go so if i know that on a specific at a specific time of the cycle i'm not going to perform as well does that mean i should just rest on those days does it mean i should train harder like what 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 could we potentially imply from these results
1: if we start to track our, our menstrual cycles and we start to overlay information um, on top of that, so when we perform well or we feel great or the days that we don't feel so good, um, I think you know, for a, a recreational and um, active um, woman, then yes, I, I think there's definitely the scope to say, well, today I might have a rest day and you know I'll I'll train you know tomorrow and, and do X, Y, and Z. It becomes much harder, of course, at the elite level because, of course, in their high-performance system, there isn't necessarily the, the the leeway to just take off an unexpected day or, or to to change the whole sort of training schedule like that. So I think what we need to do is is to be kinder to ourselves. So it may not be in, in at the elite level that they can take a rest day, but we could maybe look to adapt that particular training session such that you know if there was, for example, um, know particular sort of uh, stomach cramps that we could try and you know undertake activities which would be slightly kinder to ourselves and so i think that you know we we can't um schedule the olympics in line with menstrual cycle phases for each individual athlete and we can't necessarily change the high performance system particularly for team sports right where you might have a, a team of women with all different symptoms all on different days of the menstrual cycle so i think that at the moment we can I guess, take a, a kinder approach and try and make small adaptations, but certainly for the exercising and more recreational sportswoman, um, then I think that, you know, we really can look to to make some slightly bigger changes and, and change our schedule in, in line with that. But it's really difficult because, you know, at the moment, we really don't have either enough data to direct this type of um, adaptation that we're discussing, or we don't have enough, I guess, um, sort of Direct data from the athletes. I mean, some some coaches are very good at this. They've, they've been tracking this for years, and they've really got a good sense of that. And um, but I think you know, at the moment, in general, we don't have that level of information. And I, I really welcome this information and um, coming in the future, uh, such that we start to then publicise the type of good practice that we have and the type of adaptations that we've made, and um, to really maximise um, female performance.
0: As far as that goes, are you by any chance aware of specific apps for doing this? Or is this like, how how do people go about tracking? So, at the
1: moment, um, in terms of tracking, um, you can do that without an app. It's super simple. <laughs> so, you can use a, you can use a calendar um, and you can start to note down um, some of the characteristics of your menstrual cycle. So, I would, for example, um, suggest that on a calendar you write or denote the first day of your, of your period of menstruation and the last day so that you get a sense of um, how long you bleed for. I might even write on the calendar which days were maybe heavier than others in, in terms of, of the bleed. And then if you can, um, I would really suggest, um, and this is something that, you know, isn't done from from an app, this is, is something that you could do alongside, but if you could establish ovulation, um, so you can do that by using a, a urinary ovulation detection kit. Um, if you can do that, um, I would put that information on my calendar because, again, that really helps us understand, um, you know, and try and sort of estimate phases of the menstrual cycle. And, of course, it's another really big tick to show that you have a healthy fully functioning menstrual cycle so if you can um, establish ovulation and put that on the calendar and then we can start to build up this sort of profile of, of your reproductive changes and then as I say on top of that I would start to write down you know things like performed really well today or felt really energized or felt really awful and you can build this up over time and um, of course you could use any type of, of software you like to, to do this but i think at the moment and um, any you know whether you use a calendar a notebook some software some apps at the moment it's really important to understand that you need to put in your information and it should be your information that you use to adapt your performance. I think what we have to be really careful of is, is you know, moving away from perhaps some um, pieces of equipment or, or software or, or apps or anything like that that tell you um, how you're going to feel in a particular
0: phase based of some based on somebody else's data or based on the literature. So. As we come to uh, the conclusion of today, if I were to hand you a soapbox to say, this is the thing that I want the listeners to take away today, what, what would you say?
1: I really want for athletes, their coaches, medical staff, their support team, any type of practitioner, I want all of us to be open and frank, Um, when it comes to menstruation and the menstrual cycle, so that we can have really open conversations um, around these issues and i think more than that we we need to recognize that this information should never be used against a female athlete so it's not an excuse to to bench somebody or to exclude them that you know that these are all very positive conversations and that by having these conversations tracking this information and making these nuanced and individualized sort of Adaptations to training and performance, as I said, that this will lead us to, you know, sportswomen being able to, you know, produce their best performance on any day of the menstrual cycle, and you know, just to allow more women to take part in sport. Um, they're not put off then by, by menstrual cycles, you know, particularly young younger girls. And that we see, you know, great strides at the elite level, you know, those podium women winning elite athletes, and then right through to our older, sort of master athletes and sports women, that they continue to train and compete right into old age. Wow, that was, I, I won a lot, right?
0: That, that, <laughs> I, I think we need to cue the anthem music. That was pretty yeah. epic. <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful. Overdue and, uh, and well-needed information. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Elliot Sale.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you honestly so much. It's, it's a real pl- privilege and pleasure to be able to come on
0: and talk about
1: female athletes, which as you know, is a topic really close to my heart.
0: Lovely. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us and we hope you have a physically active day.